Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. I'm here with my good buddy, Robert Barnes, and he was just telling us a story about United Airlines. I said, you know what? Let me go ahead and hit the live button because I think the audience would really enjoy it. So, Robert, you want to give us a quick Reader's Digest version? I guess you're stuck in Houston right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The uh, So I was meeting up with some clients, and a friend of mine earlier in the week uh, had a trip canceled in Chicago where he was going to travel from Chicago to Texas and then back to Chicago, <clears throat> and they canceled the flight and then told them that uh, they said, don't worry, we rebooked you, and they rebooked, uh, rebooked them to get to Texas right after they were supposed to come back from Texas. Even though it's all united. So uh, I got, you know, I was on a flight uh, out of Houston to Vegas last night. They kept giving an hour delay, hour delay, hour delay. Finally, I figured out. I started listening in, eavesdropping on some of the United people. They're like, we're going to have to cancel this, but they don't want us to tell anybody we have to cancel this. Right. So I was like, okay, I'm going to get my Airbnb and my new flight on Saturday. Because the quickest I could get out was Saturday because uh, when you have these one stop hubs, you can't get out because everybody, uh, like all the Southwest flights were all booked as soon as all the United flights canceled because Houston's a United hub, nonstop hub. So uh, it's, and it's a, in my view, it's a reflection of ongoing issues with the vaccine mandates and the fallout from it. I represent a group of pilots that are looking at other remedy beyond Title Seven. That's one of the Supreme Court cases we'll discuss today. Um, in the but yeah, so it's part of an ongoing pattern of issues that are, are continuing COVID fallout. Yeah, so this is the story I was going to tell you. One of the members in our mastermind group, and uh, which you know you you spoke at, he runs the largest Amazon delivery network in the state of Wisconsin. So. Uh, Amazon doesn't control that the entire way. What they do is they hire uh, independent contractors to take the packages from the Amazon warehouse, basically, and deliver that to the house. So he's one of the, I forgot what they call them, but one of these uh, Amazon independent contractors. And so he has like literally two, 300 employees. And he's got like, I don't know what it was, like a hundred trucks, like plus so it's just this massive logistics business. And I was talking to him about the model the other day, the business model. I said, you know, obviously you cannot afford to have someone not show up. I mean, that, that's just, you can't just not have that truck go out and like, oh, whoops, sorry. You know, you're not going to get it until tomorrow. And when Amazon's whole thing is you got to get it, you know, ASAP. They're going, how, how do you work around that? And he goes, for every single shift he has, he has like two other people set up as um, placeholders or kind of plan B, plan C in case that first person doesn't show. And then he's got to pay them something just to kind of be on call. And then he's got to rotate that and organize it. And I'll bet it's the exact same thing with United. And although they may have enough pilots right now just to kind of get by, they don't have that second and third backup like they used to. So if they do have one little break or one little chink in the armor, one little thing pop up, one guy calls in sick, it just creates this chain reaction to where they're just screwed. Maybe that's it. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think they've never, like we've had a couple of these incidents over the past two years under uh, Steve, uh, I, I don't know, I, forget, I guess he's boot edge edge, and I always call him booty booty gay gay because that's quicker and easier to remember, but our dear Secretary of Transportation, the, uh, you know, he's, we've had multiple incidents, not only like railroads, you know, trains going off the rails and having environmental collapses, but these sudden hairline problems that they have mm. never explained. And I think down deep, the reason why they 
don't want to explain it as it relates to the bad decision to have vaccine mandates on pilots. Right. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so now let's get into, well, actually, before we get into the Supreme Court decisions, because I think this is really big. I I'm, can't wait to get your insights on this. I know you're a betting man, so who do you got? You got Musk or Zuckerberg? You know, supposedly Zuckerberg's been training. So the, uh, you know, yeah. Well, supposedly, it, I, I, supposedly Elon Musk is like a judo or like karate guy. And I saw him in a picture where he was actually doing sumo wrestling. Did you see that one? No, I did. So the, uh, uh, I mean, credit to Elon. He's a master marketer. Whatever people yeah, right. Elon, his marketing skill is not lacking. And the, so my instinct would say that Musk has the mindset that would make him better at it. He's a lot bigger guy. He is. Then you have Zuckerberg, who's one of those, you know, Gates-like obsessive geeks. That's never known. <laughs> He's been, like, secretly super training. You know, and probably he, he, he'd be the one to cheat. So, you know, be like, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So from a betting perspective, you'd have to go back. It used to be my political betting method was always, who is the better liar? And people say, oh, that sounds bad. And I was like, not really. Imagine you're in a jam and you're about to be totally screwed and you need someone to lie for you to save your life. That's the president you should pick because generally that's who wins. You know, one of the only times that didn't happen was 2020 when we got a complete idiot get elected. Um, but the uh, but generally it kind of works. So it you know cheating could be an edge there. So I give the cheating edge to Zuckerberg. Uh, I give the mindset edge to Musk. So I would make them even odds, probably 50-50 either one. Mm, interesting. Did you just see uh, it just came out in the news that they might do it in the Coliseum? Yeah. Not do it. I mean, like I said, for marketing purposes, you can't beat Musk. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That is going to crush the Mayweather-McGregor pay-per-view. I can yeah. absolutely guarantee it. All right, let's get into the SCOTUS stuff. I was on Zero Edge today. We all know what happened yesterday with the affirmative action stuff. But, uh, I mean, like, two or three of the story, or three or four of the stories today in Zero Edge is just like uh, Supreme Court. And every one I read, I'm like, yeah, right on, right on, right on. So uh, it was something about student loan debt and a couple others. So what's been going on in SCOTUS? So the this is the end of their term. So they go on vacation now. So all their a lot of their big controversial cases they usually sit on until the last week or two. Uh, and okay. That's why so many of them are coming out. And so because now they the they're Supreme Court justices, they're also old. They don't want to work in July. They don't want to work in August. Uh, you know, they're available for emergencies and things like that. But that they, they go they go party and vacation now. Uh, aside from Clarence Thomas, the greatest justice on the court, he gets in an RV with his wife yeah. and travels through middle. That's his idea of fun and vacation. Like, there's a real American for you, uh, as opposed to these other ones that are going to the Hyannisport or going to, you know, yeah, I like Bobby Kennedy. Uh, Epstein you know, Island. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Epstein Island. Yeah, at least yeah, go to Hyannisport better than Epstein Island. Uh, but, you know, Cape Cod and uh, Martha's Vineyard and. You know, they can tour all the great climate change estates. You know, they right. you know, go to Barack Obama's Oceanside, $12 million estate, then maybe hop over the West Coast and view Bill Gates' $25 million Oceanside estate. They're all deeply worried about the oceans rising in between flying the private planes and the Oceanside estate. Uh, but so, yeah, the one of the big ones, to, there are two big ones today. One was the student loan. And the, the impact of that is beyond the student loan because they were using the COVID emergency powers for this. Mm. So this is another great decision limiting their ability to use COVID emergency power to do whatever they want. Because if this if the court had upheld this, the danger would have been they could have done like a central bank digital currency in the name of COVID emergency power. 
So as you've been noting, there's other ways for them to achieve those objectives without people even noticing. But so this was another final nail in the overuse of emergency power in the United States from the COVID lockdown. Because what Biden did is he told the Secretary of Education, you well, really, there's an, and there isn't in the, in the law, if an emergency happens, the Secretary of Education is given the power to adjust student loans to accommodate for that emergency. So, and the idea is that if I get, like, let's say a hurricane hits or something, I should, I should get some relief on my student loan for a period of time until I can adjust from the hurricane taking out my house or my business or whatever. That's what it's there for. And Biden decided to say, well, let's blame COVID for our student loan debt problem. So, and uh, luckily the Supreme Court was like, mm, no, enough is enough. And they quit pretending that COVID explains every problem that exists in the world and is the easy pretext for a seizure of power of everything. The president does not have the power to just mass forgive student debt in the name of COVID or anything else. Congress hasn't given him that power. And until it does, this $430 billion forgiveness package is done and dead. Now, what about, what about the, the rent forbearance or mortgage moratorium or, or, or maybe it's vice versa there, but not having to pay your rent, not having to pay your mortgage. That was included in this whole COVID overreach too. So is that kind of done, even if they want to bring it back? Last year, the Supreme Court said they couldn't do it. And so okay. but what they originally said was, well, it's almost over, so we're not going to rule. And then Biden said, hey, look at that. I'm going to extend it a little longer. And then they came in and like, OK, all right, we were just giving everybody a break. No, you can't use the COVID to issue a ban on rent and eviction, rent increases and eviction uh, or moratorium on rent itself. Now, that hasn't stopped local jurisdictions from doing it. So, you know, I think in Oakland, it's still in place, I, you know, mm -hmm. There's places right now in America where landlords still can't collect rent and still can't because evict. of COVID. Yeah, because of COVID. Or supposedly, right, right. Yeah, yeah, three years later, four years. Can you imagine? Like, there's a lot of people saying, "Geez, I was uh, landlord business not is no so bueno." Uh, yeah. Same with L. You see with the Airbnbs. Airbnbs are getting shellacked this summer in a lot of big cities, and what that's going to do to real estate is going to be interesting. I mean, even BlackRock is reconsidering their mass investment in home real estate. They've been trying to dump some of their excess stock. So the, uh, uh, but a lot of that was derivative of a lot of crazy COVID policies. And we've, we're seeing the final end at the federal level to the excessive use of COVID policy in the denial of the student loan program. Now that will have an immediate impact. On, like there was so much debt people were sitting on that they haven't had to repay. And the last one was student loans. And now that's gone. And it's good. And it's coming at a time for a perfect storm. You know, as you've been talking about, as Jeff Snyder's been talking about, we already have a credit contraction coming in. We already got more debt and we're more leveraged than ever before. Uh, this could look real ugly economically. Yeah, I just did a, a video on that just a few minutes ago, Robert, where we pointed out that this applies to about 40 million Americans and it equals on average $400 a month. That's a big deal in disposable income, especially when you yes. look at retail and how that drives the economy. And then especially when you look at the bullwhip effect, because uh, that's usually kind of a, a younger demographic that's oh, yeah. uh, that's benefiting heavy from the heavy millennials. Yeah, from those not having to pay their student loans. So what are they going to spend money on? Restaurants, bars, cafes, retail. And that's where all the job growth has come. So you could exactly. see how that kind of creates a doom loop there where no more. Uh, well, now you got to pay your student loan back. Now you're not spending as much. Now they hire those people that, uh, that or excuse me, now they fire those people that were the patrons of their business to begin with. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's going to, I mean, they, they've been kind of coasting off of post-pandemic, but like they've been the biggest group shifting to Trump it, uh, uh, from, from 2020. The reason why he's beating Biden in the polls currently, it's almost all working class millennials and Zoomers. So, uh, you know, the, it's, it's non-college plus, I mean, the working class is more educated in America than ever before. And sometimes that throws it off, but these are people that are, you know, your community college folks, uh, you know, good fair number are still high school, not high school, but, uh, disproportionately women, disproportionately black and Latino, but they are trending massively towards Trump. I mean, to give an example, this is a group that Biden won by about, uh, or Hillary won and Obama won by 30 plus points. Uh, mm-hmm. Trump is now winning that group. And it's first, he's the first Republican to ever win it. And it's all because of the economy. And it's all because of what you're describing. And now it's just about to get a lot worse for that exact group. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you said that there was a couple decisions what was the other one? Other big one today was that if you're a web designer, you don't have to make uh, somebody's gay website. Uh, There's another crazy Colorado rule. Like how I was, first you got to bake the cake, and there was no you know you don't have to bake the cake. You got to make the website. You got to celebrate, and especially these were gay rights groups targeting these people, right? It wasn't like they accidentally saw a gay couple said, "Oh, they're a great web designer. Let's use them." Oh my God, they don't like gays. That isn't what happened. The, they went and found the sole, like the tiny percentage of web designers that are evangelical. It's not like it's a huge evangelical sub industry. It's web right. in the world, right? I mean, most of those are punk kind of people, uh, and harassed them and used Colorado law to try to sue them into oblivion. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, "No, you have a First Amendment right of of, of refusing to do services. It's not just a First Amendment right to do certain things. It's a First Amendment right to not do certain things." And so that was a good ruling today. And then that comes up on top of the great rulings throughout the week for religious accommodations and employment that has a huge impact on vaccine mandate cases, the big affirmative action case that has all kinds of ramifications uh, politically, culturally in America, far beyond what you've seen. So it's a topic close to my heart. As a day what, what was, what was the re- religious accommodation, Robert? So, what was happening was, you know, we have Title VII in the United States Civil Rights Act following the for- enforcement of the 14th Amendment which said you can't discriminate against someone in their employment because of their religion. And what that meant is if somebody had a religious objection, you had to make reasonable accommodations. Now, these are mostly big employers. They're real small employers. It doesn't cover. But uh, your medium, big-sized employers, it covers, big corporations especially. And what was happening was the courts had used a, an out-of-context quote from a 1970 Supreme Court decision to say that all reasonable accommodations meant was to consider just to consider, not to actually look at all the possibilities. And if it was just more than a small burden, you could fight, you could discriminate anyway. So in the uh, vaccine mandate context, they were saying, look, if we don't, if you don't take it, other employees will be mad. My customers will be mad. My clients or vendors will be mad. You will look bad in the public, uh, that kind of thing. And, or it will cost me, you know, a very small amount to shift people around, but still some amount of money. And courts were saying, oh, that's an undue burden on employers. You don't have to accommodate that religious objection. And you have so many judges that love the vaccine and love the vaccine mandates that they were coming up with these incredible excuses to punish people who asserted religious objections to taking the vaccine. And the U.S. Supreme Court came in and corrected all that and said, no, if you're an employer, there has to be an undue burden under the law. And that means a substantial and unjustifiable cost. And you have to look at all the accommodations that you could provide, not just one or two. You have to actually consider them. You can't just, you know, talk about them. And and you have to do a cost analysis, cost-benefit analysis of each one. 
and you have to show why you really physically, financially can't accommodate this person or otherwise you've discriminated against them. And the bias of other employees and the prejudice of customers and vendors doesn't get to be considered as part of that calculus. It, because otherwise they said, you know, you could you'd say, well, you know, my client base, they see a Muslim and they think Allah Akbar and the place is going to blow up. And so I can't hire Muslims. And, and that would somehow be an undue burden to hire Muslims. And so uh, the court said, no, no. But the biggest, the big watchers, a lot of my, I have tons of vaccine mandate cases. Uh, Tyson Foods, 3M, a uh, half dozen companies across the country, over 100 clients. And everybody's been waiting on this case because this case mm-hmm. was going to decide whether they could win or lose. The employers could win or lose. They're going to lose now. So if they're smart, they're going to start selling all these cases in mass. The ones that are dumb will go to trial. It's fine by me. Uh, you know, I, I want to hang them. So these, so this can never happen again. I mean, this was open. You know, being somebody's employer was not an excuse to control their body and control their medicine and and overrule their religion. Um, and I found it deeply offensive at multiple levels. And but, so, but let's. And these are, I, but I want to I want to dive into that though, Robert, because ethically and morally, I could not agree with you more. Is it a place for the state to get involved and say, hey, business, you have to take this into consideration when you hire this employee or when you fire this employee, regardless of what it is? Because that's where I start to kind of recoil and say, I, I, I totally agree with it. Ethically, I think it's the right thing to do. I think we as a society should put pressure on that business to do what we all know is right. But do we want the state coming in, the government, and forcing that business due to the precedence that it sets for other things? How do you think about that? Yeah, it, it goes to all the civil rights laws. So it, it because of the same question would arise in race discrimination, gender discrimination. Uh, I know. That's, that's, and I, and I'm, you know, believe me, I, I'm not a proponent of discriminating on race, obviously. But it, it is an interesting question. You know, do we want the government getting involved there? Yeah, it's who has the power. And, and I've often asked people to make the decision of who has the power. Who, who are we going to give it to? I think in the context of corporations of a certain size, that you have a certain number of employees, you are uh, organized as a state chartered entity that has special immunity for your stockholders, and you're engaged in interstate commerce. I'm okay with it because I think it's a means of enforcing the 14th Amendment. And in that position, I'm more comfortable with juries making the decision than corporations making the decision as a broader political principle. But I think what makes it permissible and different than, say, if this was imposed on any individual, then that's, I think, a different issue. Uh, But I think, to me in particular, I've always held this view about corporations, especially, that state-chartered corporations are state-created entities that are given special immunities. The main immunity they're given is the individuals who invest in them uh, their risk is limited to the scope of their investment. And consequently, so like that's how stockholders can't be sued for the actions individually uh, for the actions of a company. And there are people, my friends on the left, who have always been critical of that. You know, documentaries like The Corporation, they say it creates a sociopathic entity and so forth. I don't necessarily go where where they go. I think there's fair criticism amongst them, but uh, I'm on their points, but I don't, I don't want the state to have ultimate control. But my view is, okay, if... Uh, I'm going to organize a state chartered entity and I'm going to hire a large number of people uh, so it would be of sufficient scale and I'm going to do commerce across multiple states. 
then I think it's fair that I abide by federal civil rights laws. If okay. I'm not doing those things, then I think it, you have a very different principled argument. So that's kind of how you differentiate that big corporation compared to the the wedding cake maker in, exactly. in, in Denver, because you could argue that, hey, if that wedding cake maker should have the right to say no to a gay couple, then XYZ business should have the right to uh, not hire someone because they haven't had a vaccine or something, or because we're in Islam. Exactly. So, what, excuse me. Yeah, exactly. What it effectively does is it really gives an economic edge to small enterprise oh. uh, you know, that, that you have more. And I, I favor that from a free market perspective. I agree with Adam Smith that the greatest danger to inflation isn't high wages, but high excess profits in the sense of big corporate monopolistic power. The same view on like uh, issues like, uh, you know, why should we regulate big tech? Like a, a good number of libertarians are like, that shouldn't be a state position. And my view is if they have monopoly power, I think that changes that analysis. <clears throat> if they have monopoly power, then I think you can impose obligations on them that you couldn't if they didn't. And then, so let's just parlay this into the discussion on Harvard, because uh, I, I don't know definitively, but I would assume they're a private school. So, you know, same type of question: Would you would you say that they should be held by these uh, or held responsible for abiding by these laws because they're a nonprofit or because they receive some sort of payment from the government, or kind of how do you differentiate that? Because if it's a private business, like a private charter school, and they don't want to, you know, I mean, heaven forbid, but if they didn't want to bring someone in because of their race, well, you know, maybe they don't want to bring them in because they're white. Well, they, ha I guess they should have the right to do that if it is their private property and if it's their business, just like you should be able to do that with your own home. Who You, you should be the judge of who you let in and who you don't. Yeah, I mean, in this particular context, the reason why Harvard's covered is Title VI and the various uh, uh, education programs, it's because of how much federal government money they make. So for okay. example, Hillsdale is not covered. Hillsdale can't be sued because they take no federal money whatsoever. So Hillsdale oh, right. can't be sued for any affirmative action plan it put in one way or the other. Does the nonprofit have something to do with that? None, in particular instance. Okay. It, it could potentially, but in this particular instance, it's solely because they receive federal funds. Um, and in the case of what people don't know, and this is, goes back to Eisenhower's 1961 farewell address, people remember the military-industrial complex warning. They forget his administrative state warning because his other warning was, we're building this big bureaucratic state and we're kind of buying off all the academics in the world. And that might create conflicts of interest that don't turn out to be good for us. Uh, people don't know that's up to a quarter of the money, even in places like Harvard, comes from the federal government, federal taxpayers. Not just okay. the student loans and student grants, but all the research money. I mean, that's where they start the various little Wuhan kind of investments, right? It's a federal NIH to a university, and it ends up in a little lab in China, and then we all get to experience it around the world a few years later. Uh, but it's one variation of it. So that's why they're covered. They're, they're co they are prohibited. They're covered under the 14th Amendment through the Civil Rights Act because they take federal funds. Okay, got it. So now if you could go into the actual decision itself and then what you think the long-term ramifications are going to be. Yeah. So ramifications are going to be huge because what the Supreme Court said is you can't consider race, period. They said, and, and here's the thing for people to know, that essentially college admissions had become a test in collectivism. Not only right. in terms of what they were being taught, but how they were admitted. 
you are admitted based on your immutable characteristics. You are not admitted based on your individual character. They almost didn't even consider it. They were just all these little plus signs based on black, white, Asian, Caucasian, uh, uh, you know, Latino, Hispanic, uh, things of that nature. Uh, you're immigrant, not immigrant. Things uh, and, and to some degree, you know, your parents went there, your grandparents went there, legacies, as they call them, donors, you know, parents are donors or somebody else a donor on your behalf. And this is what was driving admissions at the elite universities and every other university. And uh, the problem was, how do you make legacy admissions and donor-based admissions legal when that has a legal, when that has a disparate effect at favoring non-black students, for example? Okay. Um, well, you create affirmative action. You create a quota system. And who do you favor there? Well, Henry Louis Gates put it well. He said, if they made a documentary about affirmative action in the Ivy League, and this is the lefty professor, Henry Louis Gates, he said the movie wouldn't be straight out of Brooklyn. It would be straight out of Brookline. And he was referencing the elite uh, inst uh, neighborhood outside of Boston. Yeah, there's a country club that played U.S. Open, Brookline Country Club. That's exactly right. And so what it was is affirmative action was for rich kids, rich black kids, rich Mexican kids, rich Puerto Rican kids, rich uh, white kids to cover in terms of legacy admissions uh, and in terms of donor-based admissions. So it was all washing each other's back. And the people who were getting screwed were smart kids and working class kids, and especially smart working class kids, regardless of what race you were. And they were hiding all of it. The second thing affirmative action did is it created an institution that propagated wokeism and permanent bureaucracy in our university academy because they were acculturating these people to a certain mindset. And they came from this right background to make them more aligned with those viewpoints. So affirmative action is a pillar of wokeism in America, not just a means of helping out privileged minority kids and cover for privileged white kids. So the U.S. Supreme Court came in and finally, clearly, they'd handled affirmative action cases three times before, and they kept kicking the can down the, down the corner, down the street. And the last decision they made, they said, look, an affirmative action plan will only be constitutional if it has an end. And we're now almost 25 years later, and they're like, you guys are never ending this. So it was always unconstitutional, frankly, illegal to discriminate based on race. And there's no question they were discriminating based on race. And it has been a close issue of Justice Thomas because he believes it's been used to degrade the, uh, the successes of the black community by this uh, by this color-based system of admissions. And so he, he wrote a long concurrence in the case, et cetera. And they finally said no more. Because what was happening was, at Harvard, if you were black, you had a 50% chance of admission. If you were Asian, you had like a 14% chance of admission. And it, was, uh, and it was clear that race was the, you were, you were not being looked at as an individual. You were being, okay, you, you have this immutable trait, you get extra Point. In fact, they figured out it didn't matter what your AC, your ACT score didn't predict whether you got in. Your SAT score didn't predict whether you got in. Your GPA didn't predict whether you got in. Your essay couldn't predict whether you got in. What your race was predicted whether you got in, pure and simple. Uh, so it was old school racism, like the anti-Jewish quotas the Ivy League imposed in the 19-teens, 20s, and 30s. And so, uh, so not a surprise, they just you know brought back some old tradition in a different route. The Supreme Court finally said no. 
said no to the Harvard case, no to the University of North Carolina, said you can't consider race, period. And they said basically no more collective tests, individualized tests. Like we acknowledge that racism may be uh, maybe important for some individual person. They may tell you a real interesting story. That could also be a white kid who experienced racism. It could be any kind of racism. They're like, so we're not saying racism has no role. We're not saying adversity has no role. We're saying be individual. Look at each individual and make choices based on individual and quit giving them minus or pluses because of the color of their skin. Just, yeah. just no more doing that. And so it was a great decision for that. Now, what it does is it puts in jeopardy, like AOC was going around saying, why didn't they get rid of legacy admissions? Well, technically, because it wasn't before the court, but AOC skipped that part of civics class, like some other parts she skipped too, like how money works. Please listen. <laughs> uh, but so see, uh, basically, uh, uh, but it actually will damage legacy admissions. It will damage donor-based admissions because their excuse, the only way they got away with that was affirmative action. And, and Bobby Kennedy was concerned. He's like, man, those would just make these institutions bastions of privilege. Just the opposite. They're bastions of privilege right now. You know, on average at Harvard, 4 to 5% of students or less come from median income or below. Think about that. Less than 5% of students come from half the population. Uh, th th these were, I mean, I, this is where I actually agreed with Jesse Jackson. He said, they say it's the, the best and the brightest. It's not. It's the richest and the whitest. Um, I was like, yeah, he, so the first part he's got right. The second part, well, not so much. Um, so this will be revolutionary in re-democratizing American education, and that will bring wokeism into doubt, right? When you have a bunch of uh, Vietnamese math students and working-class white kids and working-class black kids from Brooklyn, they're not interested in feminist intersectionalism. You're not going to be able to fill up that class anymore. All of right. a sudden, you, you don't even have a paycheck anymore. All of a sudden, you don't have a publications anymore. The entire economic fuel of wokeism was built on affirmative action and its class preferences for the privileged of all races and all backgrounds. And so this is a revolution, not only for the individual against the collective, for being judged on merit, not based on skin color, but also for the, for the enlightenment against wokeism. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow Rebel Capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. Yeah, I, I heard that they came out with a response, Harvard, and said, oh, yeah, sure, we'll we'll do this, no problem. And then they kind of wink, wink, nod, nod, said that they would just base the entire or most of it, the admissions process, on your essay. And in your essay, you could, if you wanted to, if you so cho chose, 
you could talk about your race and all of these other things. And then, you know, that's kind of a, a way to get around the ruling um, in a very smug way, by the way. I don't know if you saw that tweet, mm-hmm. but what are your thoughts on that? They're at real risk because if they go full confrontational, like a bunch of state and local governments did after the Bruin Second Amendment decision came down last year, then they'll get the same consequences, which is over 100 cases have extended Second Amendment rights in a bunch of cities, counties, and states, and insurance companies had to write a bunch of checks to lawyers because they lost those cases because they were too bold and too brazen about rejecting and refusing to enforce the laws written. Oh, okay. The second problem they face is uh, they face risk of blowback. You know, like 10 years ago, when my libertarian friends out have said, you know what, you're going to have hardcore Rush Limbaugh-style conservatives say, we need to get rid of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. We need to get rid of the... You would have thought I was nuts. And yet today, some of the most arch-conservative senators and House members are demanding exactly that, the obliteration and abolishment. I mean, DeSantis is running on that part of his campaign. Get rid of the IRS, get rid of the FBI, get rid of the CIA. Now, I have doubts about the sincerity and all that, but putting that aside... The mere fact he's campaigning on it is a revolution. Why did it happen? Because they keep overreaching. They keep trying to personally attack Trump just because Trump is like the almost the accidental disruptor. It's like he comes in and he's not even trying to necessarily deliberately overturn the deep state. He just keeps stumbling into it. Yeah, he's like, in a china shop. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. And all the China's falling down and they're all the owner's mad, enraged. And he's not even trying to knock it down. He's just, you know, looking, he goes, well, well, wouldn't it make sense to go over here? And, well, why would uh, want- Yeah, the horns. Yeah, exactly. Trump <laughs> being Trump. And he keeps, uh, you know, Dennis Miller made that joke about Ross Perot decades ago. He said, Ross Perot would be great because he'll just accidentally expose the whole scam our government is uh, just by stumbling into it. And Trump has done the same. But because they keep doing that, they keep waking up Trump supporters that our law enforcement apparatus, our national security apparatus, I mean, deep state was a, a phrase that conservatives never even used prior to 2016. That was a lefty Peter, Peter Dale Scott idea from 1969 that borrowed on the dual state idea from about a century before by The Economist. And so uh, they, the universities run the same risk because there's plenty of conservatives that are like, maybe we need to look at our government funding of universities. Maybe right. a little less funding for research. Maybe we need to have a little less fun. Maybe student loans in college isn't the answer for our kids. Maybe we need to have more trade program. Maybe you have direct access to economic opportunity. Go back to the apprenticeship models of the 19th century. Why should I send my kid off to be indoctrinated by some lunatic uh, and comes back and he's not sure which gender he is anymore? Uh, I don't, you know, I don't need any of this. My kid doesn't need any of this. Look at the millennial working class. I mean, there's, you know, still living at home with mom because they can't afford rent, and now they're about to get double whacked after the wonders of the stimmy checks that took them on the Robin Hood stock rise and didn't have to pay any debt. Now all of a sudden they're going to pay all their debts and they can't get their job and the wages are going the other way. Yeah. Uh, and then I was, what did they get for all that student loan debt? So uh, the, the risk for universities is that a lot of conservatives wake up and say, look, these people are so rogue, so reckless. The Supreme Court of the United States says you got to fix this. And they say shove off. Well, maybe it's time to say shove off university. Maybe it's time to start taxing those endowments. Maybe it's time to re-examine our federal funding of them, federal subsidizing of them. If we did, the entire woke machine falls apart because it's built on paychecks coming out of the bureaucracy 
and the professors of the university. So how do you think that plays out in the private sector with, with businesses and corporations as far as uh, the uh, affirmative action and then this whole kind of woke narrative that we see with, with everybody, for heaven's sakes, whether it's Disney, Target, Bud Light. Uh, I just put out a tweet yesterday about I was trying to get an Uber here in Medellin and all the cars are like rainbow color. And I, you know, sarcastically said, uh, you know, thank you, Uber, for making all your car rainbow colors because I used to hate gay people, but now I love them because you've been shoving this in my face nonstop for the last month, you know, as, and, and then I went on to say, which I think is a very good point. I think it's something we need to get back to that. We were there in the eighties and nineties and I don't know where we went, but I said that, uh, the source of pride should be your character. It shouldn't be who you sleep with. And I don't know how we've, we've strayed from that. That was just common sense when you and I were growing up. But anyway, how do you think this affirmative action decision plays out in the private sector? Well, I mean, I mean, you nailed it that all this is about the individual versus the 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 a collectivist mindset. In other words, are we individual people, or are we in service to some cause, to some global thing, to some community? Often, which has leads to fascism, communism, totalitarianism, crony capitalism. Every every problem with the state or collectivist society starts with the assumption that we're not individuals, and that our greatest trait is some collective attribute. Um, our national identity, our ethnic identity, our gender identity, our sexual preference, you name it, our religion. And it's all dangerous. And what's great about this case is it does have ramifications to employment, to all these uh, diversity, equity, inclusion programs in universities uh, and, 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 and in private uh, employment. And I mean, I got one just today from the State Bar of California saying, remember, we've changed our rules to educate you about your implicit biases. And make sure that you attend the special CLE program. All this is an excuse to give money to some schmuck to tell me about implicit biases. Uh, I was like, I'll tell you about implicit biases, pal. But, you know, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. So uh, it impacts all of it. Uh, impacts contracts. It's gonna, there's a lot of money. The political machine in America is built on funding, you know, your highway contractors, your local construction guys, your people who work in the government buildings. All of that is built on affirmative action in order to, to protect the politically protected. The, in fact, it's part of how they- that's gone. Just to be super clear, all of that is now illegal. It, it's yeah. not just Harvard and University of North Carolina. It's any business that uh, you know says it with, uh, with pride that, hey, we're affirmative action and we do this and we do that. Now, all of a sudden, all of the, the citizens can sue them and say, hey, and they can use that Supreme Court decision as uh, kind of a baseline for their lawsuit, and it and it can just have this ripple effect across the entire economy for the next decade. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, and it destroys the democratic political machine at a local and state level. So the and even a federal level, because now federal contracts can't have this race plus categorization that they've been doing. And a lot of that, by the way, is a scam. I mean, so it is like you. Let's say you want to set up an if you're a Hunter Biden, you find someone to be the majority owner or minority owner of the company that fits a certain racial demographic and you get a special bonus when in fact the money both going in and going out isn't going to that person. They're just getting a little agency commission to pretend the business is black or pretend this is Hispanic. The other irony, it was my uh, argument, uh, a buddy of mine that's still, he's a residential dean at Yale. Uh, He was Puerto Rican. We are roommates at Yale. And he used to complain about the Puerto Rican affirmative action at Yale. 
you know, he's Puerto Rican from New York because he was like, the, the Puerto Ricans are letting in. They're all Spanish aristocracy. You know, they're, they're bringing in the people that oppressed everybody. You know, that's their, you know, I come from old working class Puerto Rican stock and all the affirmative action people here. I mean, he was a genius. He was one of the, you know, he's like chemistry, patent lawyer, he, you know, all that crazy science. I don't, I don't, organic chemistry to him was fun, not something to, 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 you know, screen out people. Um, and he's like, yeah, they're letting in the old Spanish overlords. You know, affirmative action at Yale was the great, great granddaughter of a Spanish duke. I mean, that's how absurd it was. But we were, you know, making sure that uh, we had uh, accurate Hispanic representation. Um, so you look at that broader ramifications. This has been a corrupt institution critical to propagating both the political machine of the Democratic Party, especially uh, with some Republican allies and wokeism at the same time. So you remove, you pull that pillar out, and this whole thing can collapse quickly. And that's wow. why it's a revolutionary decision politically. I mean, that sounds fantastic. I mean, what are some real world examples of thing of changes that we should expect? Kind of your base case within the next three years. Uh, multiple. So one university admissions will probably most of them, the smart ones, will shift to the same one they had when I went to Wisconsin Law School which was individually based that, okay. you know, that everything is, tell me about the person. Let's talk about the person. And that is going to, the, the secondary effect that will have is it will be a massive increase in individual judgment, individual character being elevated. And that has mindset ramifications, I think, throughout academia, uh, because it's such a shift of framework. Secondly, major boost. And, well, and I just want to be clear there. Then that means, and a lot of people don't recognize this, but we as a society, have a limited group of super, super smart people. And you can look at them as a human resource. So what we're going to be doing in the next decade, and we'll see how this plays out, is that that vital, that crucial, that that uh, priceless resource that we have is going to be leveraged to its greatest capacity. Uh, yeah. Because now you're taking that resource, that brain power, and you're putting, you're plugging plugging it and make sure that the smartest kids are going there regardless of the color of their skin and then society is going to reap the benefits I mean who knows you know if they cure cancer or they come up with some sort of uh you know power source that's uh that, that's limitless I mean th there's a lot of really cool things here oh absolutely I mean the way I've described someone is they're going to be letting a lot more little barges in uh, I remember discussing with a friend of mine they're like I was like, you know, I'm an example of how the problem of affirmative action in terms of difficulty getting in, everything that went with it, and uh, and that there weren't more kids like me there. And he said, Barnes, you're a reason why affirmative action worked. People like, look what happened. They let you in, and now and now you're still a troublemaker. So the, uh, you know, the uh, don't let the uh, protesters in. But that will be the net effect. And then it has all these knockoff effects that, like you're talking about. Because you're, you're, you all of a sudden you're celebrating merit. You're giving yep. really smart, skilled people opportunity. These are people that are going to be disproportionately outside the box thinkers. Yep. Like yep. currently, the law schools have been dominated by affirmative action for 30 years. All it's done is put rich kids, sons and daughters of rich kids in this aristocracy uh, that's anything but noble. And one of the things that's produced in the entire practice and profession of law is people who don't think outside the box. They never think outside the box. I mean, in fact, they're often shocked. I'll come into a case and say, hey, why don't we do this? And like, what? Wait, wait, wait. And it's almost like you can't do it. I mean, they, they grew up like you couldn't play in the street unless you were on a play date. You know, it's that kind of mindset. Right. Know, because everyone was of the same class, socioeconomic, cultural background. It created this distorted reality where the other thing it did is it discouraged independent thought, outside-the-box thought, creative thought. 
And as Peter Thiel's pointed out, we haven't really invented anything in like 50 years. Part of the reason for that, I mean, outside of the tech space, and he would argue that tech inventions have not been as publicly beneficial as the inventions that preceded it, uh, either in medicine or elsewhere. Like Peter Thiel's argument is if, if we had a truly inventive society, we would have already solved cancer. He goes, we haven't solved any cancer. Uh, why is that? He goes, because our institutions of influence, particularly in the academy, have been totally corrupted for ideological purposes. If we remove the foundation of that, which has been affirmative action, and we return the smartest, the best, and the brightest to these institutions, getting to interact and engage with another in an opportunity in the path, we could revolutionize American society, our inventiveness, our creativity, our outside-the-box thinking in every profession and occupation. That's why it could be so revolutionary, this case, uh, that may, some people just be about Auburn and North Carolina admissions. It goes way past that in its culture. Yeah, it sure does. And if I was someone that was part of that group, I would actually be excited for this because, A, I would not want to be in a university where I just got there because of the color of my skin. I, 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 would, I would not be able to sleep at night. But then, B, if I was someone, let's say that you're, you're black or Hispanic and you are top shelf you are the top of the class as far as merit well you want this as well because then you will be recognized based on the fact that you are the best and you won't be confused won't people won't look at you and say well you only got there because of the color of your skin now all that goes away and if i was someone like i said that was a black or hispanic at the top of my class this is something that i would be very excited about because now all of a sudden people are going to recognize how good I am, and they're not going to confuse me with someone that got in just because of this affirmative action. Exactly. I mean, the when I was at Yale, I led a protest organization to challenge it when they were trying to screw over poor kids. They were trying to get rid of need-blind admissions and need-based financial aid. And I formed a whole protest group over ended up leaving the school in protest just to make the point, uh, to try to get people's attention. Finally got Yale to reverse by leaving. But while I was there, a university dean came to me and said, you know, Robert, wouldn't you want your own kids to benefit from, you know, these legacy and donor programs? And I was like, you got to be kidding me. You think I want well, my kid to kick out some poor kid like me because I went here? Like, that's exactly one of my kids. I would I'd be horrified at that. I would be ashamed at that. I wouldn't even want the possibility of that. I believe in individualism. I believe in merit. I believe in little d democracy. Uh, I believe in, 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 in everything I believe in would be foreign to that. It's not just self-aggrandizement and self-enrichment at the expense of all the things that matter. Uh, and so, absolutely. And that, that was Thomas's point in his concurrence, because he's responding to Justice Jackson, who's the product of this woke affirmative action era. Right. is on the Supreme Court because of it. Thomas realizes he's there despite it. And he's like this. And Thomas comes from the old black independent working class of the Deep South. People who had a no-nonsense perspective about everything. But they like one of the, the number one trait for working class kids to overachieve their background, to achieve economic success, cultural, anything. The number one trait is they have an inner loci of control. They recognize what? Uh, they have an, what's called an inner loci of control. So what that means is they think they can control their outcomes, not that the outside world controls their outcomes. And what it really it's the same thing Medgar Evers realized when he said you know, Lowell talked about this, too. Absolutely. It's, it's a mindset revolution that says, I can control a lot more of my future than people think. And when you think that, you actually create that reality. And that's true for any working class kid from any background. And like, for example, politically, within the black community, they have kept the black community repressed by convincing large portions of it that they can't do anything. There's that no hope. That's right. Exactly. 
the, the white man is going to screw them. The system is going to screw them. Just vote Democrat. Keep your mouth shut. We'll give you a little check and otherwise play by the rules we tell you to. Uh, it's just a different plantation, just a different ghetto uh, than the ghettos they put Jewish people in, in in Europe in the 30s. And once you lock, unlock that, this is Thomas's point, and you remember the old, proud, powerful, black, independent, working class tradition in America that you know goes back to black populists in the late 1880s, 1890s, uh, then you realize you, you, you know, true free market equals true free independence equals true free liberty equals true freedom. Uh, and the consequence of that is you break free of political dependency, economic dependency, cultural dependency, and you become a vibrant community. I mean, one of the reasons the Democratic Party's never wanted that is what happens the moment your any of your programs work? All of a sudden, they don't need your programs anymore. They don't need to vote for you anymore. That's why their programs are designed to fail. They right. have to continue to fail. It's like the war machine. They have to keep finding, they can't have peace because then nobody's going to pay for the guns. So they got to find a new excuse for a new war. Same is true here. And affirmative action was a pillar of that, was was effectively uh, uh, pulling out the upper middle class black potential leadership from the black community, co-opting them and acculturating them with woke white lefties to keep their own black community repressed and to die. And well Very well said. Yeah. Do you think this could be a renaissance for the black and Hispanic community? I remember reading one of Thomas Sowell's book where he pointed out that once these affirmative, like the the statistics for the black community were all going in a very positive direction as far as their income, the divorce rate, et cetera. And then they implemented affirmative action and some other policies like this. And he said, from that point on, it just went straight downhill. The divorce rate shot up, the uh, percentage of um, blacks and uh, Hispanics in jail just skyrocketed. So if we reverse that, do you think we could have effectively a renaissance within these communities? Oh, absolutely. I mean, because they what they did to the black community, they turned around and did to the white working class community in industrialized resource rich regions in America. So like you look at what was happening to black America in the 1980s, it's happening to white West Virginia, eastern Appalachia, eastern Kentucky, uh, large parts of Pennsylvania and Ohio in the 2000s. And because it worked so well, in other words, they were able to take this dissident political community that could challenge the power structure and uh, basically lock them up either physically or mentally. Many of them be, many of them are the labor force participation rate dropouts, right? The people no longer captured the unemployment data because they're, they're the people that are unemployed, not looking, or they just went on disability check. They often checked out of society entirely. These are people that only vote for Trump if they vote at all. Um, so what happens if you re-empower those communities at the very individual level? I think you reignite an economic and cultural revolution that could bring back America and its in, in what it was and, and, and what its principles and ideals sought it out to be. So it absolutely has the potential to be the most socially, culturally impactful case since Brown v. Board of Education. That's great, man. I mean, it's really something to be excited about. And, you know, what's interesting is I do all of these stories uh, about the news and the politics and the authoritarians and the central planners. And every single time you just see it going in the wrong direction. But it seems like the the ray of hope that we have, at least for the last couple of years, has been the Supreme Court. So do you think the Supreme Court could, I don't know, protect us is the right way of saying it, but legally protect us maybe from something like a social credit score if they come out with this or when they come out with the CBDC? Well, they're going to have like 
So two years ago, there was the big case of abortion and guns and the role of the state and the federal government concerning it, as well as the administrative bureaucratic state and major policy areas. This year, we've had you know, a string of big decisions relating employment, relating the corporate relationship to religion, relating the individual relationship to the state vis-a-vis religion, affirmative action. Well, guess what case they took last week? They took a 16th Amendment case. So what was happening is under the recent tax legislation, they were try- Congress was trying to expand its power to tax people's property. It was a really a direct property tax. It was taxing unrealized gains simply because you're a minority shareholder, an entity that you didn't get the dividend or payment back from. And if they could get away, this is what Elizabeth Warren wants to do. If you could get away with taxing unrealized gains, well, then you can tax everybody's capital gains, and then you can just start taxing property directly. And the, my view is that violates the 16th Amendment, which only allows income to be taxed independent of the source, and that means gain severed from the source, and that property taxes are not allowed. Now, I would expand it further. To me, the 16th Amendment means you can't tax a man's labor either. Uh, you might be able to tax somebody's profit from somebody else's labor under income. It, you know, it's supposed to mean something. Well, when they passed it, they said, an income tax will not tax a hair on a working man's head. That was actually said in Congress. Yeah, so much for that. The, uh, that's all I mean. It, it, this is what it's done. Uh, it's right. cut. So, the, uh, so I think the net effect, that decision could be huge. Because there, the Supreme Court has taken up whether the 16th Amendment effectively prohibits that. And that would mean the death to the property tax, death to the wealth tax, that has, it has impacts across the board on a whole range of other issues. If you could reinvigorate the 16th Amendment and its restrictions on Congress, which they haven't done since 1916 in over 100 years, uh, that could be the next great Supreme Court case that resto- helps restore a liberty in America. So that's how they could maybe prevent them from uh, leveraging the the data that they receive through a CBDC or a unified ledger and turning that into a credit score or a social score, excuse me, that would actually impact someone's uh, daily life, whether that's their ability to get along. You know, one thing that uh, I just thought of, Robert, is one of the benefits for the central planners to a CBDC is the a lot of the deposits go from a liability of the commercial banking system onto the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet's infinite, so they can extend credit based on things other than merit because they don't have to be paid back. Uh, they can base credit on things such as race. But I just dawned on me that now they can't do that. Right. Unless I'm wrong there because oh, that, absolutely. again, you know, that I always use the example of uh, Dylan Mulvaney. You know, with a CBDC, they're going to give him uh, credit at almost zero interest rates, even if he has a 500 credit score because he's part of a disadvantaged group. But for the people on this live stream right now, they could have an 800 credit score and they're going to have to pay a much higher rate if they're even going to be able to get that auto loan. But just taking, uh, replacing Dylan Mulvaney with, uh, you know, this person from Black Lives Matter, let's say, uh, now all of a sudden, even the Fed can't extend that loan based on those attributes being the color of their skin. Exactly. Everything that's related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and equity, so, you know, social governance, ESG. I mean, I know uh, Larry Fink, BlackRock's like, well, I'll just change the terminology and that will solve my problem. <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. Um, but all of that is predicated on variations uh, that race is a permissible classification for economic favoritism. Yeah. And the U.S. Supreme Court just said, no, it's not. Yeah. And- and more broadly said, 
Quit using collective traits, period. Um, I mean, you have more arguments to use collective traits for university admissions than you do for private employment, than you do for vendor contracts, than you do for social credit scores. And so if it's not okay in the university context, it sure ain't okay in any of those contexts. So you're absolutely correct that it took out a pillar of the ESG, DEI, entire legal framework. All of them are now vulnerable. America First Legal is now openly taking cases in every single context. They say, if you think you've been discriminated against for any reason, as it relates to the stock market, as it relates to uh, your employment, as it relates to some government contract, as it relates to a banking relationship, anything, we're going to bring suit on it based on these grounds. So if those places don't clean up quickly, they're going to be facing political and legal blowback fast. Yeah. And, you know, another thing that came to my mind is all these commercial banks right now have been getting a lot of heat because just some you know, lackey or with BML with BLM will look at the amount of loans, the, a lot of, the total mortgages. Right. And if 60 percent of those mortgages go to, let's say, white folks or something like that, they'll say, oh, my gosh, the whole system is racist. And they'll put all this pressure on uh, banks and politicians have come out and said this. They're putting all this pressure on the banking system to generate more mortgages for uh, you know disadvantaged groups. So that all goes away as well. Complete all of it, all of it. I mean, yeah. a lot of those were predatory lending scams. You know, they're to help the black community. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, that actually goes back to residential desegregation, where a lot of residential des desegregation was a scam by real estate speculators who are in on it from the get go. Um, to to do to prop to profit on the downside and the upside. When you dig into a lot of a lot of so called things to help uh, people that have been historically disadvantaged in the country, uh, wasn't meant wasn't actually uh, didn't have that effect. This actually would. Uh, the, these changes actually would help everybody. That's why I think Bobby Kennedy's mistaken. This will actually restore democratization and reduce the power of a privileged few, uh, particularly with their access to the state no longer being a license to print money for themselves and power for themselves. Wow, man, we could go on for another two hours just on the, the knock-on effects this will have we just scratched the the surface here tip of the iceberg wow i appreciate your time man uh this has got to be a really exciting moment for you and uh how can people follow your content because i know that you and viva are probably going to be talking about this stuff for for months to come yeah yeah they can find everything including as george can tell uh, you great bowling advice from viva uh at uh viva <laughs> barnes law locals all right, buddy. Thanks for coming on. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, man.